0: You are now listening to the January 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This is My Song.
1: Hello, this is Terry with Psalms, This is My Song, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. The word grace is one word that cannot be separated from the children of God. It is because we have our lives by the grace of God. But what is grace? Often, grace is described as a present to someone who does not deserve to receive it. The word grace in Hebrew is hanan. Its meaning is to show kindness to someone who is lower in stature than himself by showing respect. Grace is showing kindness with respect from someone in higher position to someone who is in lower position, from someone who is in power to someone who is without power, and someone who is wealthy to someone who is poor. That is grace. For us who receive such grace, it is truly a reason to give thanks when someone who is stronger, taller, and in higher position reaches out to someone like us who are weak, short, and in lower position. How wonderful it is for us to receive helping hands when someone reaches out his hands to resolve our problems without any hesitation when we are in hardship and in remorse because of difficult problems that we cannot solve ourselves. How much we desire those helping hands when we are desperate. As we know well, David lived a life as a fugitive as he fled from Saul who was jealous of him. He was fleeing not because he did anything wrong, but merely because Saul envied David and hated him and wished to kill him. David had to flee not only from Saul, but also from Philistines and even his own son. Perhaps that's why David pleaded to God for help in many of his Psalms. Psalm 56 starts with David's cry. Be gracious to me, O God. David cried to God to be gracious to him. We can feel his dire desperation from his cry to God. We can hear his heartfelt plea to God so God would open his hands by lowering himself to David and save David from tribulations. Have you ever experienced such desperation? Have you ever had situation in your lives that you pleaded to God desperately to lower himself to you and open his helping hands? Have you ever sought and wished God, who is almighty, so desperately that if God would lower himself to you and show his face close to you, even just for once, then all your problems would be resolved? That is how David sought God. Be gracious to me, O God. Biblical scholars believe that 1 Samuel chapter 21 is the background story of Psalm 56. David fled to the city of Gath in the land of Philistine from Saul who was trying to kill him. He then happens to come across and meet King Achish and his servants. Achish's servants said to Achish, Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? When David heard that, he became very afraid that Achish would recognize him, and pretended to be insane and escaped the situation, and then wrote this psalm. David fled from Saul who was trying to kill him, but even the place where he fled, he had to face another danger that threatened his life. He pleaded and cried to God to be gracious to him when he realized that he was surrounded by danger all around him. We are living in a difficult time. Although there may be some of us who are having desperate situations just like David, perhaps it may not be as difficult for the rest of us. But all of us are having difficult time due to the pandemic that has hit all over the world. On top of that, each of our lives are difficult because of the problems with health, problems with finance, troubles with relationships, and uncertainties about the future. I pray that we would turn to God with all these problems. I pray that God will resolve all these problems when God lowers Himself to us and is gracious to us. I pray the grace of God will be with us, the grace of God lowering Himself to us, and spreading His hands to help us. I'll conclude today's program by reading Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps, as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. (music)
2: My Savior and
1: my God Well
2: may this going
1: heart rejoice And tell
2: its raptures all abroad Happy day, happy day When Jesus washed my sins away He taught me how to watch and pray Rejoicing every day Happy day, happy day When Jesus washed my sins away O happy bond that seals my vows To him who merits all my love Let cheerful anthems fill this house While to that sacred shrine I move. Happy day, happy day, When Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray, And live rejoicing
1: every day.
2: my sins away When
1: Jesus
2: washed My sins away my sins away
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is The Golden Chain of Salvation. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi.
3: As we dig into Romans 8, verses 26 through 30 today, I submit that the big idea of this passage is that Christians should rest assured that God's good purposes will be accomplished in their lives. Christians should rest assured that God's good purposes will be accomplished for their lives. And just to give you an idea of where we're headed this morning, here are our three points. First, the Holy Spirit prays God's will for us, verses 26 and 27. Second, God's will prevails, see this in verse 28. And then lastly, those whom the Father foreknew are guaranteed to become like Jesus, in verses 29 and 30. May the Holy Spirit help us as we dig into his word. First, the Holy Spirit prays God's will for us. Let me read that into our hearing just one more time. Verses 26 through 27 say this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray or what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When trials come, we get disoriented. A fog sort of settles into our hearts, settles into our minds, we get tossed around on the waves, it's hard to know which way is up, and in our weakness, it can be hard even to know what to pray for, or even how we ought to pray. He came and figure out how to articulate what a positive outcome might be based on what we're experiencing right now. But the triune God and his sovereign goodness does not leave us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us intercedes for us. Look at your, look at your Bible in Romans chapter eight. Hopefully you have it there opened in front of you. We read just before this uh, in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed adopted children of God. And we can cry out to him then as our dear Heavenly Father who sees and cares for us and hears how we groan inwardly as we await for Jesus to return. Verse 23 is that reference. We are waiting for Jesus to return and bring us to the final stage of redemption, our glorification. So likewise, in verse 26... The Holy Spirit helps us to take hold of God's promises. Even though we don't understand what God's will is, we do know that God is our Father and that he promises all things will work out for the good. We can trust his good character. God has promised redemption even in the midst of suffering and affliction and in distress. And the Holy Spirit knows even better than we do. We are not omniscient. The Holy Spirit is. And so the Spirit groans for us on our behalf with words that can't be verbally expressed. Verse 27 there as well, it says, he who searches hearts, that is specifically referring to the Father. The Father knows what the Holy Spirit is praying for us because the Spirit and the Father share one will. They desire the same thing. The unity of purpose within the persons of the Trinity means that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, steps up and brings our prayers into conformity with God's will. So what happens is the Spirit connects our hearts with the Father's will, the Son's will, the Spirit's will. Even when we don't know what to say in the midst of our tribulation, God sees and God knows And he groans for us, so that when sorrows like sea billows roll, he has taught us to say it is well with our soul. So my question is, when you are struck with trials, suffering, anxiety, what is your response? When these things happen to you, what is your response? We are designed to seek peace. So we inevitably are trying to find peace somewhere. We will naturally pursue that peace anywhere we might think it could be found. Sometimes we try to reason our way to peace. We try to rationalize what's happened and what's going on right now. So if we can boil down what steps led me to this particular state of suffering that I'm in right now or just anxiety, well, maybe then I can be able to avoid it again in the future. I can rationalize this away. Unfortunately... Reality does not submit to our reasoning. We are not omniscient, that is to say we don't know everything. We are not omnipotent, which is to say that we cannot bend reality to our wills. So even though there's wisdom in sort of reflecting and thinking about of the motives of our heart, analyzing our choices and options, it does not, it cannot bring us the lasting peace that we desire, that we need, that we want. Or we might try to distract ourselves either through getting out and meeting with people, or maybe just mindlessly scrolling through our phones, or with food, or with alcohol, or with anything that might numb the pain, or at least keep us from having to dwell on the pain. But the truth is that facing and expressing our hopes and fears to God is a means through which we are able to gain some true measure of relief and of peace. Our groanings relieve our griefs. That's one of the important lessons that we learn often from the language of the Psalms. We are instructed to bring our groanings before the Lord. We know this too, though, even in other settings. In the gym, if you try to lift heavy weights, you groan. Because for some reason, it seems to help you lift heavy burdens. But you can't groan too loud, especially if those grunts are like too deep for words because they will kick you out. I don't know that from experience. Only heard about it. I should just point out that when it says groanings are too deep for words, that doesn't mean speaking in tongues. This isn't a reference to a private prayer language. The groanings here connects us back to verse 23. It's a longing for the final redemption, or consummation, another word for it, of all things. To the fact that the Spirit intercedes for us should be of great comfort to us. Being someone who prays publicly most Sundays, I know the temptation of trying to construct a prayer as if the audience, the primary audience, is actually the congregation rather than God. Jesus reminds us, of course, of the danger of praying publicly, trying to showboat, trying to use empty words that are not actually connected with our heart. Maybe you've heard people who slip into Victorian English when they start to pray, as if God only spoke King James English. Maybe your concern is that you don't like praying out loud because you think, I'm afraid that other people are going to listen to my prayer and think that I don't have the right words to say. Listen to what this passage is saying. Spend time in communion with God by his Holy Spirit and press into him. Don't be so concerned about saying the exact right words. There's not a magic formula. That's not the point of prayer. God's will prevails, our second point. God's will prevails, verse 28. If you don't have a memory verse for this week, I'll suggest verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's good that the Spirit intercedes for us according to God's will, because God is good, and God's will always prevails. It's verse 28. Verse 28 says that there are those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. This is speaking of Christians who are united by faith with Christ. Two ways of speaking about the same group. For this people, all things work together for good. Now, because we don't know what God's hidden will is, We don't have a full knowledge of what God is doing in any given moment in our lives. We don't know what he has planned for us. So we don't really know what is good for us. Our limited perspective keeps us from knowing what God's good plans are for us. This is why we need the Spirit to intercede for us according to the will of God. We are so often focused on the short term, especially in our youth. We become impatient. We want all the pleasures that life has to offer and we want it now and we don't want it ever interrupted. So when we think of things working out for our good, we might think of the American dream as being that good. Health, wealth, happiness in life, relationships all around us flourishing infinitely and indefinitely in the here and now, no more anxiety or loss in our lives. This is what is sometimes assumed or even taught in this particular verse. But that is just too short of a perspective for what Paul has been arguing for. Prosperity in this life, as pleasurable as it may be, pales in comparison to the eternal good that lies before those who love God. No matter how much it looks like you're winning in this life, you know that creation is still groaning. You yourself are still groaning. This is one of the messages of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, that we need to reorient our desires towards something greater than the light and momentary pleasures of this life, toward the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy, where there is pleasure forevermore. So when you read good here, don't think, oh, I know it exactly what would be good, so God must be promising me that. We cannot accuse God of failing to fulfill promises that we have made on his behalf. That's not how any of this works. We don't know what his good is, but we can trust his good character. It's been well said that in any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be well aware of three of them. We are not good at interpreting God's hidden will. We're just not. We don't judge God by our limited perspective. We trust him for his grace. We won't always understand what God's doing in our lives. But here's what this verse is saying. We can trust that God is sovereign and that he's good. God is sovereign. This is what it means to say that God's will prevails. All things work together for good. And I suggest that the only way that this is possible, the only way that this could be true is if God's will prevails, ultimately. You and I, of course, have made plans. We have made intentions. We have purposes for our own lives. But I think you'll know by experience that there is often a gap between our knowledge of our plans and the success of said plans. Our greatest dreams can be frustrated. What we desire to see happen doesn't always happen. That is not true of God. There is no hint that God's plans are ever frustrated. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is Ephesians chapter 1. So let me just make two clarifying statements. First, God's sovereignty does not take away your agency as a person. He does not coerce anyone to do what they do. You still can and must, in fact, make meaningful choices for yourself and your life. For example, Paul has just recently told us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He's going to go on in chapter 12 to instruct us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. So, so when you think of God's sovereignty, invincible as it is, don't think of it as meaning that your actions and your decisions are meaningless. It's not the way it is. Second, God's sovereignty does not make him the author of evil. God's sovereignty does not make him the author of evil. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is 1 John 1.5. God created everything very good. To sin... Evil is to act against God's law. God's law is a reflection of his nature. It is impossible for God to act out of his nature. So it is impossible for God to sin. It is impossible for God to be the author of evil. So if we're looking, if we're trying to figure out what the cause of evil is, we need to look at the corrupted nature of humanity that follows Adam, not the hidden will of God. God. God is never surprised by evil, but he is not its author. Evil does not escape his sovereignty. God is sovereign over evil, and God is good. These truths are not contradictory. They must be held together. This is really just another way of stating what we've already heard this morning, isn't it? In the story of Joseph. What his brothers meant for evil against Joseph, God meant for good. For Joseph and for the countless others who were kept alive by his planning for that coming famine. Their evil actions did not disrupt God's good purposes. We know, he tells us, we know God ultimately and finally works all things together for the good. It says in verse 27. But how can we know that? How can we know that? Well, we keep reading. Verses 29 through 30. Point 3 those foreknown by the father are guaranteed to become like Jesus. I'll read 29 and 34 us again. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified these verses tell us that there is an unbreakable link between those who are called according to his purpose that we just read about and their glorification this is part of the, this is the good that all things are working towards those whom god has called are necessarily justified Those who love God are predestined for the fullness of joy in the presence of God. We are guaranteed to become like Jesus so that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Firstborn here in this particular verse, of course, refers to the fact that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, who now has a resurrection glorified body in that sense. He is the first fruits of the final resurrection. This is how we read about it in 1 Corinthians 15. His resurrection is first, and then ours follows. So when he returns, all those who belong to him will be raised to new life and glorified new creation bodies. This is our hope. We will, at that point, be more fully conformed into his image. And there will be a a definite family resemblance. Throughout this chapter, though, Paul is building a case for why Christians should have assurance and confidence, even in and through suffering, through agony misery. And he does this by instructing his audience to put their confidence in God's goodness and his sovereignty. Paul used a word twice in these two verses that has stirred up a lot of contention and confusion for many centuries within the church. Predestination. For some, this is not a word that brings comfort and assurance and confidence, but rather brings fear and brings disgust, but let's try to understand why Paul thought that this concept of predestination would be an encouragement to his audience. If we think that God's counsel is changeable in any way, then we're not gonna be able to be confident that we will be finally saved. If God and his purposes are not a solid rock, then our assurance of salvation is going to be built on shifting sand. And when the rains fall and when the floods come, when the winds blow, our blessed assurance will be devastated. In his last instructions and encouragements to his disciples before he would be betrayed, Jesus in John 15 reminded his disciples that he chose them. They did not choose him. It's John chapter 15. So it's Just as Jesus' disciples are about to enter into a season of confusion, a season of suffering, he tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus thought that his electing them, his choosing them, would be an encouragement to them. In that moment, he is encouraging them, he is reminding them of their calling and of their salvation from beginning to the end. All of grace. And it is unshakable. There is great confidence knowing that God has set his providential and covenantal love upon us. This is a difficult passage, I recognize. But we're going to look at these five actions, each in turn, from these two verses. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Each action is accomplished by God. It is a description of how he carries out, unfailingly carries out, we might say, his saving purposes. And each of these actions is a verb that's linked together in an unbroken chain of God's actions. And this is why the Puritans, like William Perkins, called these verses the golden chain of salvation. So let's just look at each of these verbs, these actions of God, in turn. First, those whom he foreknew. Now, some take this to mean that God's knowledge comes from the fact that he exists outside of time. So he is able to foresee, to foreknow, to see into the future, as it were, to observe and to learn whether or not someone will put his or her faith in Jesus. And then he predestines that individual based upon that condition, upon the knowledge of their will. So he foreknows their will. Others think that "for new here should actually be translated into English as those he has formerly known, which is to say that he's, these verses aren't actually talking about Christians. This is talking about Old Testament saints whom God has known and faithfully cared for throughout the generations, people in the Old Testament, people he knew from a long time ago. But I submit that neither of those options is the best interpretation. The knowledge here is a relational term. Knowledge is a relational term. It's used all over in the Old Testament. Two quick examples. Amos 3. Amos chapter 3, God says to his people, his chosen people, you only have I known from all the families of the earth. Now, obviously, God has knowledge of all the other families of the earth. So what does it mean that God knows them? Well, it's a relational term. He has known Israel as his people in a unique and special way. But it's not just used of Israel, it's also used as individuals as well. Jeremiah chapter 1 says that before God formed the prophet Jeremiah in the womb, God knew him. God knew him. And in both cases, the knowledge that God has isn't based on anything that he's foreseen. It's not based on something that he looked in the future and learned about Israel or about Jeremiah. It's a knowledge of his own will for their lives. He foreknew what he has determined for them. It is a personal, intimate, relational term, this knowledge. And it can only be properly used of a creator of his creation. Those whom he foreknew are those whom he has from all eternity known, set his love upon, an unchanging, personal, relational way. Remember, God is omniscient, which is to say that he is all-knowing. He doesn't need to look through time to discover anything because he has freely ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, predestination is not based on the will of the believer, but on God's will. Predestination, then, is the next link in our chain. Those whom he predestined. The word here means to determine beforehand. The apostle Peter uses this in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Peter's praying to God, recalling Jesus' crucifixion. He says people gathered around Jesus to do, quote, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He's speaking to God the Father here in prayer. So we take this to mean that Jesus' crucifixion was predestined or determined beforehand by the Father to take place. It's used also of believers in Ephesians chapter 1, which we've already alluded to moments ago. We are predestined for adoption as sons, which is to say that our adoption as sons and daughters has been determined to happen by God before it happened. Please note, as we're going through the links in this chain, that each of them rests upon the one that came before it. God's predestination is based upon his having foreknown a particular people. This is the same group of people throughout each of these golden chains in, that, in this logical thought that Paul is making for us. We continue now to the next link. Those whom he called. Those whom are predestined by God are called by God. This calling refers back to verse 28. Remember those who have been called according to his purpose? This isn't just a general call to repent and believe in the gospel, like a call that you might be able to look on the caller ID of your phone and say, "Mm, I don't know if I want to answer this right now. That's not the kind of call we're talking about here. This is an effectual call, a call that brings the results that it calls for. Not unlike when Jesus called Lazarus to come out of the grave, as he called him to come forth, he gave them the life with which he was enabled then to come out of the grave. As he called him to come forth, he gave him the life with which he was enabled to come out of the grave. Do you understand that the call brings the ability to respond? When God calls someone inwardly to himself, he or she will necessarily respond positively to the gospel. Not by compulsion, not by coercion, but he sweetly and powerfully moves the will. The one unwilling to repent and believe the gospel becomes willing to believe and repent the gospel. And we know this, we know this calling in verse 30 is effective because those whom he called, he also justifies. The next link in the chain, those whom he justified. This is the same group of people throughout. If you were called by God in this sense, then you will be justified. The Christian's justification rests upon his or her having been called by God. Just a quick reminder, justification is that legal declaration that one is counted as righteous that Paul has been explaining already so much through the book of Romans. It is the imputation of Christ's obedience to our account so that we might be reckoned as righteous as a believer This, of course, that justification is why there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he glorified. The Christian's glorification rests upon his or her justification. Think back to this whole passage. Just before this, he was talking about groaning and waiting for this future day of glory. One day we will no longer need to groan under the weight of the destructive weight of sin and its miseries. We will have glorified bodies like Jesus has now. So, this is still very much a future thing. We are awaiting that glorification. So, why is it declared to have happened in the past tense? It hasn't happened yet. Why does he say we have been glorified? This is still obviously a very much future thing. We are not yet glorified in that sense. Well, it could be that he presents this in the past tense because it's, he's, he's presenting this golden chain of events as if it was all as good as done. It's in the past tense because it's as good as accomplished. It hasn't actually played out in history yet, but it is as good as done because it is according to God's will. That makes sense. But might there also be a sense in which we have already been glorified to some degree? Think with me for a minute. Earlier in Romans chapter 3, Paul wrote in three twenty three that all have sinned and thus fall short of the glory of God. I think we could accurately interpret that verse also to say that we have all sinned and thus lack the glory of God, which is to say that glory that God crowned us with at creation that we read about in Psalm eight, we've lost it in and through our rebellion in Adam. So that the image of God in man that He crowned us with at creation, we have given up. It's been broken, it's been shattered through our sin. But, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are conformed into the image of His Son. This is what Paul tells us here, and the image of his Son, of course, being Jesus. It's as if the glory that we were given and that we gave up as being restored in us as we grow in Christ-likeness, even in this life. Second Corinthians 3:18, I think, says something about this. Paul there says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul says that we are, just think about this, just even in Romans 8, Paul says that we are already adopted as sons and we anticipate with eagerness the adoption of sons. Both of these things are true, even just within Romans chapter 8. So it might be the case that our future glorification is leaking into this present evil age. I find that incredibly comforting and encouraging, especially when we are called to mortify the sins of the flesh. That God's sure glorification of us is even now leaking into this present evil age. But in any case, our final future glorification is a sure thing, because it rests on God's good and sovereign purposes for our lives. Christians are foreknown predestined, called, justified, and glorified. None of the links in that chain will be broken. That's why it's referred to as the golden chain of salvation. At every point in this process, the initiative is taken by God, who works all things together for the good of those who love him. Our anchor of hope must be fixed in the unchanging purposes and pleasures of God. If we can't trust that God is good, if we can't trust that he's in control, the only legitimate alternative is despair.
2: Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now.
0: following program is called equipping the saints
4: hello heart and soul listeners i'm pastor greg Lundsted, and i'm so glad that i can share my series from equipping the saints with you i pray that god will grow each and every one of you in christ through this series again verse nine then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Simple statement. If God would do this, bring judgment on these three situations, but deliver those godly men, then he knows how to deliver the righteous and keep the unrighteous under punishment. I mentioned this earlier. The English translation doesn't give us the full breadth and width of the way this word is in Greek then the Lord knows, but it's really in a tense that means he's already knows, it's already a done deal, and that same knowledge affects now. He has already known how to do this as he's proved it, and he still knows how to do it. It's no big deal. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and then keep the unrighteous under punishment. Now, it's kind of interesting. As I look at this, this term temptation doesn't seem to jive with the issue of being delivered from judgment, Right? You've got Noah being delivered from judgment. You've got Lot being delivered from judgment. And he says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly from temptation. That kind of throws me off a little bit. What does he mean here? Well, there's a few different words for temptation, but we think of temptation as enticement to sin, and that's certainly true. But this word here, the Greek word parismas, speaks of trials and testing, which certainly can become temptation. But it's often translated trials and testing. A trial and test can be tempting. And so, how does this fit into our passage? we got to look at the contrast. Keeping the godly from trials and the unrighteous under punishment. Contrast, right? That helps us gain understanding. The unrighteous are being kept under punishment for the day of judgment. The godly are being rescued from, I think, trials and testing which tempt. And you say, I still don't get it. Well, look back at 1 Peter chapter 4. Remember... That true believers are going to be tested and go through trials. This life is one big, difficult test and trial until we get to glory. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. The Lord's going to deliver us from this, by the way. He's going to. He knows how to do it. You're going to make it if you're a true believer. Even though it's difficult now, life is hard, there's trials like you wouldn't believe, you're going to be delivered. He knows how to do it. You're going to make it to heaven. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16 of chapter 4, 1 Peter, let him not feel ashamed. By that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty, the righteous is saved. It's a tough road to glory, folks. It's a tough road. It was tough for Noah, and by Lot's own sin, it was tough for Lot. Right? It's a tough road. What about Acts chapter 14? Turn to Acts chapter 14. I think he's talking about this life as a whole, as a difficult, tempting trial. He knows how to deliver us to glory and keep the bad guys under punishment to their judgment. Acts 14, verse 21. And after they preached the gospel to the city, they had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. And then look at verse 22 of Acts 14. Strengthening the souls. That's the inner man. That's not the outer man. It's the inner man of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? If you're a true believer. Saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It is a difficult road to heaven. It's not that you're not going to make it. But if you're a true believer, it is difficult. But the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And notice back in our passage, in contrast. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Nothing has passed by God. Sinners will be judged just as He has in the past. Sin will be dealt with just as it has in the past. Believers will be delivered because they are righteous in Jesus Christ. You see, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the Day of Judgment. The immoral people, the ungodly of the world, the angels who sinned. You see, the issue is righteousness or unrighteousness. You see, God is going to punish the unrighteous. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, not even one, Romans chapter 3. If you think you're righteous without Jesus Christ, you're fooling yourself. You're unrighteous. The wages of sin is death. But God is gracious. He sent His Son to die for our sins. The just or righteous for the unjust. Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, came. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you are willing to humble yourself, repent, and turn to Jesus and cry out for salvation. You call upon him, he will save you, and you will receive his righteousness, and you will be a righteous man, woman, or child. And you will be delivered. You will be delivered by God from judgment. God knows how to deliver the godly, rescue them from trials or temptation, how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Few verses as we finish up here on the day of judgment. We know in Hebrews nine twenty seven is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. Then turn to Matthew chapter ten. Matthew ten, there is a day of judgment. There's a specific time in which judgment will come. There is a day of judgment. He's keeping these people who were sinned under punishment until that day of judgment, and then there is their final punishment. Those people and angels. Matthew chapter 10 verse 14. And this is when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He sent the 70 disciples out. And he said, whoever does not receive you, not heed your words, as you go out of that house, the city, shake off the dust off your feet. He says, don't run after them. Shake the dust off your feet. He says, truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. There's a day of judgment. Go up to Matthew chapter 11, another chapter up, verse 20. Day of judgment, Jesus says. Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to approach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not, what? Repent. Woe to you, Corazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago sacked off in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of Judgment. One more chapter in Matthew, chapter Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 35. This is a day of judgment. Every word, every action, everything you will be held accountable for. And I praise the Lord my sins are covered. That I'm forgiven. That I'm righteous because I'm not going to be judged in that way. Praise the Lord. I pray for you too. Matthew 12, verse 35. The good man out of the good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word men shall speak. They shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. There's a day of judgment. Ecclesiastes, the conclusion that Solomon brings after everything, all of his adventures in sin... The conclusion he brings, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, for this applies to every person. Ecclesiastes 12:13. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Turn to Acts chapter 17. There is a day of judgment. And if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you are kept under judgment. For that time. Kept under punishment. God knows how to keep you there for your final judgment. You're not going to get away with anything. But he doesn't want you to perish. Rather that you'd be saved. Acts 17.30. Therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to who? To men that all everywhere. This is God is declaring to everyone everywhere. And that includes everyone in this room right now. That everywhere should repent. Repent is acknowledging my sinfulness. I realize I'm a sinner. I'm turning to God for salvation. I turn. I realize I am a sinner. I understand that. And I turn to God for salvation. Because he has fixed a day in which he will what? A day, right? In which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's a judgment day. And you can read Hebrews 10 on your own, but 10, 26 to 31, there is... A judgment day. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There's a judgment. And there is a final judgment in Revelation chapter twenty. There's a great white throne judgment where everyone who has rejected Christ will be judged for their deeds, and after being judged for their deeds will be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation twenty. Some of you have heard much about Christ. You've heard much about Christ today. You've heard much about your sin. I exhort you to repent before it's too late. You may think you're on your way to heaven, but you're playing games with God. You don't like his message because it calls you to forsake your sin and to turn to Jesus. But if you don't repent, you will find yourself in Hades and then hell. Crowd to God, help me. Help me see myself rightly. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to see what your son did for me. out for salvation. Back to our passage and let's finish up. Back in 2 Peter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue or deliver the godly from trials. We're going to make it, brothers and sisters. We're going to make it. Right? And the unrighteous, guess what? They're not going to make it. And to keep or hold the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's what he's doing with the fallen angels who sin, the entire world of the ungodly apart from Noah and his family, and Sodom and Gomorrah, and what he will do with the ungodly, especially false teachers. And that's the point of this. Look at, I'm going to read through verse 9 to 10, and then we're just going to finish up, because actually we're going to look at verse 10 more in depth next time. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trials to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is going to be helpful for understanding 2 Peter 2 because the rest of the chapter is about those two things. Those are the two characteristics of false teachers. They are fleshly and they despise authority. God's authority. They despise authorities. Those are the two things. They're not going to get away with it. Especially those who are this wicked, who would do this, who would entice people, who would introduce heresies secretly, who would exploit you with false words. All for these motives. They're not going to get away with anything. So my question to you is, how can we be encouraged when we see so much false teaching out there? Well, I hope the answer is obvious. God has judged sin, and He will judge sin and sinners. And these false teachers are not going to get away with it. So how does it apply to us? First and foremost, we must understand God will judge sinners, those who are unrighteous, anyone who has not received the righteousness of Jesus as a free gift through faith in him, you are in terrible danger. God, there is a day of judgment. You're in terrible danger. And if you die today, you're on your way to judgment. There's no changing it. Pointed man wants to die, and then the day of judgment is next for you. Not good. God will keep you under punishment until that day. He knows how to do it, and he's done it. He still knows how. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, made Him to be sin on our behalf, put our sins on Him, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You need righteousness, and Jesus provides it through faith. Turn to Jesus. What about us believers? Well, obviously the primary application is, don't fret, God's got it under control. You're going to make it to eternity. You're going to make it through this time of trials until glory. You're going to make it. God knows how to rescue you, to deliver you from trials and temptations that come with being a true believer in Jesus Christ. And those bad guys, they're not going to make it. Especially the bad guys, they're not going to make it. Don't fret. God has it under control, although it looks like it isn't. He hasn't missed a beat. And then lastly, an application you can go the way of believer of Noah, you can go the way of Lot. You can go the way of Noah in obeying the Lord by faith, trusting Him. No results. He was mocked the whole time. But God protected him. God watched over him. God delivered him in that sense. You can go the way of Lot. Some of you today might be like Lot. You are true believers. You have a righteous soul. But you're being tormented by the sin of those you dwell with and hang around with. I would encourage you to make decisions to be separate. I'm not saying be unkind. I'm not saying be ungodly. I'm saying remove yourself from the midst of that sin.
5: miracle work, promise keep, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart, I worship you, I worship you, his name is above loneliness, oh, his name is above disease, his name is above cancer, his name is above every other name.